Our reading for today is Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. Listen now to the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband." Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, welcome. I uh, just want to give you a quick reminder that um, today's sort of the last week you have the opportunity to support our missions teams. Uh, with the Giving Garden, I think there are uh, about 25 uh, envelopes left, so um, I hope you can uh, extend your generosity and take the remaining envelopes. I also understand there's about uh, two dozen or so shirts left as well to support the uh, West Virginia team, so uh, you could buy out those shirts as well. And I think there are about uh, 120 chairs or so left that you can purchase uh, for the team in Kenya. So a lot of opportunities today. Um, I hope that we can you know, complete 
the, the giving uh, today. Uh, please pray with me. God, we uh, thank you again for this day that you have made. And now, uh, in the hearing of your word, God, open our hearts and minds to know what you would say to us. Help us to hear your word. And in the hearing, help us obey. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So today's reading, the story of Ruth, begins with, in the days when the judges ruled. We've just spent nine weeks in the days when judges judged. And so while we're not told exactly what part of that period this story takes place, we know that the time of the judges is a frightening time, an uncertain time, because in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As a result, we know that the people and the land suffered everything from oppression by foreign powers to civil war. And so it shouldn't surprise us now that there's also a famine that is driving a family of four to migrate from Bethlehem to the land of Moab. You might recall that the last two stories in the book of Judges were horrific and involved people from Bethlehem. This is now the third story involving Bethlehem. We heard about Jonathan, the opportunist Levite whose complicity led to the destruction of an entirely defenseless city by 600 Danites. And then the story of an unnamed concubine whose brutal murder precipitated a civil war followed by near genocide of the tribe of Benjamin and then the kidnapping and forced marriage of 600 young girls. So it seems like this family is headed in the same tragic direction. They leave the land of Israel, God's promised land, this town of Bethlehem. Literally and ironically, Bethlehem means the house of bread. And there is no bread there to go to Moab, the land of their enemies. The man's name, again, ironically, is Elimelech. It's a name that means my God is king, which could be taken as a pious, God-honoring name. But in the time of the judges, we know that it just means that my God is king. Whoever I want to be king, my God, that's the king. It's another way of saying everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. The man also has two sons, Malon and Kilion. There's some dispute, but most scholars believe that their names mean something like sickly and dying or affliction and annihilation. That's why you've never met anyone with those names. I mean, life is bad, but what kind of parents name their kids sickly and dying? But that's how bad things are. And then in the land of Moab, as if in self-fulfilling prophecy, the father and his two sons die. That's what it's like in Judges. My God is king is dead. God is dead, and the children of this God are also dead. There is no future. We are not told how or why they died, but there is an old rabbinic tradition that says that their deaths were the judgment of God. It's been suggested that Elimelech left Bethlehem during a time of famine, not because he and his family were starving, but because he was rich and he didn't want to share his food with others. Part of this is because we are told that they were Ephrathites, a word meaning fruitful, which could be interpreted ironically again like, ha ha, 
They're ephrathites. They're supposed to be fruitful, but they're not. They're, they're in famine. Or it could simply be an indicator that there are people of some means. Kind of like if you hear someone is from Beverly Hills or Gangnam, right? You, you think, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they must be wealthy. So it may be that suggestion is in this word, Epaphrathites. And then further, the deaths of the two sons are blamed on their marrying foreign women. It even says that they took wives, not the usual word for marrying wives, but taking them, the same word that was used in the kidnapping of the dancing daughters of Shiloh. Then a further sign of judgment is that for 10 years of marriage, no children were born. So it's a very tidy solution, right? This family acted badly and were punished by God. If life were always that simple and that easy to interpret. But the text doesn't say any of that. We are not told that God sent a famine as punishment against Israel, nor that Elimelech's decision to go to Moab was necessarily an evil one or sinful. Famines were not uncommon in those days, and migrating during a time of famine was normal. It's what Abraham did and Jacob and others. We see it in the news every day today. Elimelech was just looking for a way for his family to survive during a time of famine. And as for marrying foreigners, the law does forbid it, that's true, but it's largely out of the fear of religious contamination rather than an ethnic one. And at the same time, we also see that men throughout the scriptures married foreigners without explicit condemnation. Abraham, for example, married Keturah after the death of Sarah, who was probably a Canaanite. Joseph married uh, Asenath, the daughter of an Egyptian priest. We also know that Moses, of course, married Zipporah, the daughter of a Midianite priest. So we, we see this as a, as a common uh, theme. And we will see later in the book of Ruth that it will shockingly argue for the inclusion of foreigners, not their exclusion, in God's overall plan of redemption. And so the first few verses offers this kind of compressed introduction to a family history and concludes with these words in verse 5. So the woman was left without her husband and her two boys. So we might have thought this is going to be another horrible story about a man from Bethlehem that is, you know, doing what's right in his own eyes. But this is actually a very different story. It's a hopeful story of Naomi and Ruth. The book is called Ruth. And I will get to her in future sermons. But today, I want to focus on Naomi because that's what this first chapter is really about. And I want to make just two observations about her today. First is this. I think Naomi demonstrates to us that you can be faithful. You can choose to be faithful even under the worst of circumstances. Even in a time like the time of the judges when everything is in utter chaos when it's about as bad as life can get, you can still choose to be faithful. Naomi embodies in her own life the famine that struck Israel. In a span of 10 years, she's endured famine. She's left her ancestral home to migrate to an enemy territory. She's witnessed the death of her husband. She's watched probably unhappily as her two sons took Moabite women in marriage. She agonized over 10 years of unanswered prayer as neither daughter-in-law produced children as if in judgment. And finally, she had to mourn the deaths 
of her two sons. She's been rightly compared to Job and Job's suffering. But Job's losses happened catastrophically in a moment of time while Naomi suffered over a prolonged period of over a decade. And I'm not sure which is worse. But in at least this regard, her suffering is worse. Because her culture and the way she herself defined her life is that her life, her identity, was rooted in being a wife and in being a mother. She is bereft of both husband and sons. Unlike Job, her essential identity has been completely destroyed and stripped away. She has become persona non grata, an unprotected widow made even more vulnerable living now in a foreign land. In this country, various studies indicate that between 70 and 80% of women will outlive their husbands. That means that more than 7 out of 10 women will live at least a part of their lives as widows. You know, that can be a very challenging time, and, and families ought to prepare for that likely eventuality. But in the days of the judges, it was even harder. According to Bonnie Thurston's book, The Widows, a Women's Ministry in the Early Church, the Hebrew word for widow comes from the root meaning unable to speak. Unable to speak. Widows had no advocates. That is, that they had no husbands or fathers or sons who could speak up on behalf of them. And thus they were effectively silenced. They were unable to speak. And even though God gave laws to protect them, even though the prophets spoke repeatedly against their ill treatment, this word itself points to the reality of their typically helpless and vulnerable state. I know that people tend to criticize Naomi based on just the last couple of verses you heard for her short-sighted theological reflection on her life at this point. The hand of the Almighty has been against me. Her name means something like my pleasantness or my sweetness. But at the end of the first chapter, based on her life experiences, she says, that's not been the experience of my life. It's been bitter. And so she tells people, call me Mara, meaning bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. That's how she feels. And based on her life, we can understand that. She's lost the three most important people in her life. She has no viable economic means of survival at this point. She's in a foreign land. Few of us, I think, will experience her depth of trauma. And so I think we ought to go slow in making a judgment about her at this juncture in her life. But notice now, even though she's holding God responsible for her struggles, she's still thinking about her life within God's will. You see that? She's still framing her life around God. This is a remarkable sign of faith. Given the violence that we've seen that happened to the women in the book of Judges, it's a miracle that any woman would continue to look to God, and especially for someone who's gone through what she's gone through, it's, a, it's an extraordinary faith that she displays. Consider that even in her prolonged grief, she's still able to hear that God had visited his people and given them food. Despite her sorrow, she's able to interpret the news that the famine has passed in terms of God's visitation. 
And she decides to go where God is. She's not being driven entirely by economic necessity. She's framing her actions around her understanding of where God is working. She may not have had much say in moving to Moab, but her decision to return to her homeland, to Bethlehem, is rooted in her faith in God and in what God is doing. And after all that she's gone through, for her to still look to God in, in this way, it's a remarkable faith. Her, fur, her faith gets further revealed when on their way back, she tells her two daughters-in-law to return to their mother's house and gives this word of blessing. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She prays that God will deal kindly with them as they have dealt kindly with her and her family. That phrase, to deal kindly, it's a little bit weak. It's a translation of the word that you've heard before. It's chesed. It's a word that is a key quality of God. It describes God's character toward his people. Catherine Sockenfeld, in her uh, book, The Meaning of Chesed in the Hebrew Bible, defines chesed as kindness or mercy that takes place within the context of ongoing positive relationship, responds to a genuine need on the part of the recipient, and goes above and beyond what is required of the one showing kindness. It's not just sort of a sentimental niceness. It's how God deals with his people in covenantal love. In the worst of times, Naomi experienced from her daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law, this chesed, this unswerving loyalty. And so she now prays the same for them. And she also says that God would give them rest, that is security and prosperity. Rest that was given to the promised land, the rest that was so elusive in the book of Judges, same word. She wants this for them in the house of their husbands. In her worldview, at this point in the story, she cannot imagine peace or rest or prosperity, security coming in any other source than in the house of a husband. And so that, that's what she prays. It's, it's really an amazing prayer. I, I don't want to, we, we cannot underestimate the faith that is required for Naomi to offer this prayer for her daughters-in-law. She's lost, I mean, even though she's lost her husband, her two sons, everything, I mean, she's lost everything in cultural terms. And even though she thinks God is against her, even though she feels empty, even though she herself has not experienced very much of God's blessing, of God's chesed in her life, she still believes enough to wish God's blessing upon her daughters-in-law. How many of us could offer that prayer under those circumstances? I mean, life can be hard, sometimes very, very hard, but you can still choose to believe and choose to be kind and bless others. You can root your prayers in the word and not in just your momentary personal experiences. When Naomi could have easily and understandably rejected God, the God of Israel, and worship instead the God of the Moabites, She kept her faith. And you and I can do the same under the most trying of circumstances. The second thing is this. You know, sometimes in life, you have no choice because choices are made for you. 
And sometimes the choices that you face are very black and white. It's clear what's right and what's wrong. But I think most of the choices you face in life are not that clear. And I want to tell you that most of the time, you have a choice. That there is more than one faithful response. And what Naomi's story tells me is that what's more important than the choice that you make is that how you respond to that choice in the coming days. Not the choice itself, but the choices you make after that choice to be faithful to that decision. You know, uh, probably one of the most well-known and beloved poems in this country is uh, Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. Uh, I think most of you are probably familiar with it, right? It, it begins with a traveler, right, uh, at a fork in the road, and he writes, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry that I could not take both. And so then he looks at the two roads, and then he chooses one, and then he concludes this way. He says, I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere, ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. This poem is often interpreted as choosing the road less traveled. To make the unusual or less conventional choice to do you, to go against the grain. It celebrates independence, individualism, and that making such a choice will make all the difference in your life. I know that's how I used to read it and how uh, that's how I've heard it taught and preached. But as scholars and careful readers have pointed out, that is a complete misreading of the poem. The poem isn't about choosing between two different roads and choosing the less conventional, the less traveled road. It's not about that at all. The poem is clear that the two roads are equally the same. There is no meaningful difference between the two roads. This is not an exhortation to choose the less traveled road. It's about the self-delusion of looking back on your life and interpreting neutral, meaningless decisions in your life as life-altering when, in fact, it wasn't. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere, ages and ages. and He's already aware and anticipating how he's going to spin this when he's old and recounting his life. And he'll say, oh, the way my life turned out, it was because I chose that road instead of that one. And that's made all the difference. And he knows that's a lie. He already knows. It warns us, this poem, against rewriting our own histories and blaming or giving undue credit to a particular moment and a particular choice. Don't think that your current success is to some one bold decision you made in the past. And don't blame whatever current unhappiness you have in your life to some one poor decision you made in the past. That choice is far less important than how you responded to that choice over the long period of time in your life. That's what Naomi's story tells me. You know, I know that making some decisions are difficult. At different stages in your life, you face difficult choices. 
How do I know which college I'm supposed to go to? What if I go to the wrong one? What if I choose what's second best? What am I supposed to major in? What if I study the wrong thing? Should I take this job or that job? What if I date or marry the wrong person? How do I know she's the one? Should I move to California or stay in New Jersey? That's an easy one, stay in New Jersey. That's a black and white one. Most of the time, God is not going to give you some supernatural sign to say, do this. Right? Not on a neutral choice. We have God's word. God tells us about right and wrong. That's clear. But a lot of stuff, you're not going to get a, a supernatural sign. Most of the time, you have to make your decisions based on what you know, with honesty, with wisdom from the people that you love in your life. And afterwards, and this is the key, you have to be faithful to that decision. Naomi probably did not have a choice about moving to Moab. Elimelech probably said, hey, we're moving to Moab, and then that was it. But once she got, once she got there, it's clear that the relationship Naomi built with her daughters-in-law, with Orpah and Ruth, was characterized by chesed. It may be that she didn't want to be in Moab. It may be that she didn't want her sons to marry these particular girls. But regardless of whose choice that was, or how that choice was made, once it was made, she continued to act on that choice with chesed, with loving kindness and loyal fierceness. That decision, that ongoing decision, that's what made all the difference. Not the initial choice. And again, like your faith, this is not, this is not some small, this is a remarkable thing. You know, in so many of the stories involving women in the Bible, that relationship is characterized by rivalry. Sarah and Hagar, Leah and Rachel, Hannah and Pananiah. Many of you here can attest to the challenges that you faced when you got married with your mother-in-law. And I imagine for some of you in the not-too-distant future, with your daughters-in-law. But here, Orpah and Ruth and Naomi, instead of being rivals, they loved one another and looked out for each other's best interest. Notice that when Naomi tells her daughters-in-law to return, she tells them to return to their mother's homes. Not their father's homes, which would be the normal usage here. It suggests to me that these women, Orpah and Ruth, don't have living fathers anymore. And Naomi is sending them home to care for their own widowed mothers. These daughters, because they are married to her family, they belong to her and she could make them come with her. That's her right. That's her legal right. But she lovingly releases her daughters-in-law to care for their own mothers because she thinks they have no future with her and that their best chance at happiness lies in seeking homes with new husbands with Moab. She releases them self-sacrificially because she's looking out for their interests. She's thinking about them and not about herself. She knows that she cannot offer them any future. She knows that she cannot produce new sons to, you know, to give as husbands according to the rules of marriage. She knows that she's got nothing. And so instead of keeping them to support her in her destituteness, 
She instead sacrificially releases them, sending them off to a better future. I mean, that's the heart of a true and loving parent. And she does that for these daughters. That's the choice that she makes. In traditional interpretations, Orpah is criticized for returning back to Moab. Some have argued that the root of her name means the back of the neck, the the nape, and is symbolic of the fact that she turns her back, she turns away from uh, from Naomi and, and returns to Moab. Some ancient commentators said that she represents those who were once baptized but now go back to paganism, or that she was the daughter of King Eglon, who was murdered, you remember, by, by Ehud. Some have vilified her, saying that she walked four miles with Naomi before turning back, and so she was then kind of rewarded with four sons, one of whom grew up to be Goliath, who was then later killed by one of Ruth's descendants, uh, King David, Right? They want to set her up against Ruth, right? That's what we want. We want, we want a battle. Esau versus Jacob. Cain versus Abel. Hagar versus Sarah. Orpah versus Ruth. But Orpah is not condemned at all. Not by God. Not by Ruth. And absolutely not by Naomi. In fact, Naomi praises her. And you could argue that she's actually made the better choice. Orpah weeps. She loves Naomi. She wants to be with her and go with her. But she reluctantly obeys her mother's word and returns to care for her own mother. That is not a bad decision. That is a faithful one. Now, we don't know what happens after that. We don't know whether she kept being faithful. But the decision itself to return is not one that we ought to judge as sinful. Ruth, on the other hand, disobeys her mother-in-law. She refuses three times to return to her people, right? You're supposed to change your mind after the third time, right? That's, the, that's courtesy, but she doesn't. And she then says these, these words that everyone uh, knows. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you walk, I will walk. Where you stay the night, I will stay. Your people, my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May Yahweh do to me, and more also, even if death parts me from you. I mean, even after death, she is not going to release herself from this bond. It's an incredible choice. She goes against all the conventional wisdom of the world. She forsakes her own self-interests by clinging to Naomi. The word there for clinging, by the way, it's... um, the Hebrew word there is dabak, which I thought was great because it sounds like the Korean word for, like, awesome, right? No? <laughs> okay, never mind. Um, it's, but it's, it's the word that reminds us, <laughs> it's the word that was used in Genesis 2 where you talk about a, a man shall leave his parents and he shall be glued, right? He shall hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. It's the same word. It means to be, to be glued, to be stuck together. And that's what she chooses. She abandons her best chance to succeed in life, to abandon her home and family, to go with an older woman who has no prospects of remarriage, whose very own survival is in doubt. It sounds like one of those rash, disastrous vows that we saw earlier in the book of Judges, but there's a key difference. 
Her vow is not a demand that God reward her. It's not a deal that she makes with God to bind God to give her favor. Instead, she invokes the name of Naomi's God and and promises to act with chesed toward her with no thought of her own benefit. This is not only, I think, a sign of Ruth's remarkable faithfulness, but also of Naomi's. Because despite all her suffering, Naomi must have lived a life in such a way that Ruth wanted to follow her God and her way of living. Even in all the grief, somehow Ruth saw in her a faithfulness that she wanted to emulate and to be a part of. Ellen Davis writes, many and perhaps most people come to God because they know and love someone who knows and loves God. Isn't that true? Most of us, right? If we're lucky enough, we had people in our lives who demonstrated to us the love of God. And that's what drew us in. I think that's the impact that Naomi had on Ruth. It wasn't just one decision that Naomi made at some point in life, but a decade of daily decisions of living together, of loving together, that demonstrated her faithfulness. That's what made the impression on Ruth. That's much harder. I want to be clear that this does not mean that every daughter-in-law is required to stick to their mother-in-law no matter what. I know that this text has been abused in places like Korea to preach that very same message. Instead, it, it calls for mutual chesed to be freely given, to be faithful, to stick by, to go above and beyond in all of our relationships in all of our relationships. You can't control most of the larger circumstances in your life. You may not have certain choices in life because choices were made for you. Maybe some bad choices were made for you. But you can still choose for the most part how you are going to respond to that choice. Right? Being a disciple of Jesus Christ isn't just a one-time decision to, you know, I, I accept Jesus into my heart and that's it, like... Now I'm saved, I can do whatever I want, it doesn't matter. Like, that is not what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's the daily living out from that choice that forms you into a Christian. The difference in your life will not be one decision, but whether you choose to act consistently over time in light of that decision. So even though Ruth here makes a powerful moving vow, we don't know if Ruth is going to keep this vow. Not yet. Right? You, you go to weddings or when we do baptisms, people make these incredible vows. We say all the right words. But whether that vow gets carried out or not, we don't know. It's not decided in that moment. It's decided over a lifetime. Well, the, the chapter ends back where it started in Bethlehem. They returned to Bethlehem. It looks like another bad, you know, cycle. Remember the the whole cycling down in Judges? Naomi started with a husband, two sons, and now she's lost everything, and she now only has a daughter-in-law. So it sounds like it's spiraling down once again. But, But there's a sign of hope. There are signs of hope. We know that Naomi has proven faithful in difficult times. We know now that she has someone with her who has vowed to be faithful to her. And more, and most importantly, 
She has heard that God is present. She knows that God is still working. She knows that God continues to be with his people in chesed. God is present in the rhythms and in the cycles of her life, even in the downturns of her life. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. There is food. The famine is past, and perhaps the famine of her life will also pass. You have to come back to hear the rest of the story. I know you can read it on your own, but you have to come back. Keep coming back each week. Keep the promises you made to worship, to do ministry, to encourage one another to follow Jesus Christ and invite others to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that um, we don't have a lot of choice about the times that we live in. We had no choice over who our parents were. Um, There's so much about our very being that we had no choice at all. But God, we know that we can choose to be faithful today. That no matter how difficult the situation, we can still choose trust. That no matter what our personal experience is right now, God, would you give us the faith to trust your word that never changes and to enable daily to choose the path of faithfulness and to bless others with that faithfulness. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Um, At this time, we want to commission our...